Welcome back for another episode of the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center's Leadership Log Podcast. When you think about the actual work being done across the center, in-house prototyping and manufacturing don't often come to mind. Contrary to that thinking, there is a small but very busy team working in AFL-CMC's Intelligence, Surveillance, Reconnaissance, and Special Operations Forces Directorate, also known as ISR Soft, doing just that. Not too many folks know about the innovative work being done by the Rapid Development Integration Facility, or RDIF team, housed on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio. We had a chance to talk with Alan Brookshire, who provides technical management and is the overall RDIF team lead, about how his small group of subject matter experts and trades craft workers provide rapid prototyping and fielding of equipment and parts to warfighters across the Air Force, oftentimes saving hundreds of thousands of dollars in expected project costs and getting much needed parts out to the field far faster than utilizing other resources. The RDIF team truly embodies the mantra of providing what the warfighters need when they need it. We hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome to Leadership Log, which is a podcast for the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center community on topics of interest. And today we're in the RDIF, the Rapid Development Integration Facility. And we're here with uh, Mr. Brookshire. He's going to introduce yourself and give us a little background on your career, sir. Okay, thanks, Sarah. Uh, my name is Alan Brookshire. I'm the director here at the RDIF. Uh, I've been doing acquisition, engineering, operations, maintenance uh, for about 47 years. Uh, I started out in the Air Force as an enlisted troop, got commissioned, um, went all the way up through the ranks and did acquisition at, at the end of my career, and then got into private industry for a while, uh, chief engineer at one company, another engineer and program manager at another company, and then came back to Wright Pat. And when I was here, things were different. And so I was used to leaning forward and I was in a program office where things had changed. So that's kind of what drove us to the ARDIF and I'll describe that later as we get to it. Okay, all right. Well, so tell us what is the ARDIF and, and how did it kind of get its start? What, okay. what was the genesis? We were, uh, when I say we, I want to talk about the select group. There was three to four of us who were working in the gunships and the gunships at the time, we were flying H models and U models, and they were getting old. Those are C-130s. C-130s. Yep. And they are getting very, very old. And so we reported to the PEO fixed wing down at SOCOM, and he decided we're going to bring up another C-130 and call it a W. So we're going to have an interim gunship, AC-130W. So what we're going to do is build prototypes down at Eggman. Our office would supply some of the uh, manpower. Touch labor came from the Combat Logistics Squadron at Warner Robins over to Eggman. We leveraged some contracts down there to buy the parts using government-owned AC-130U drawings, which was on the same platform. And we were down there at Eglin one day, hot, sweaty, building the aircraft, and I remember turning around and standing behind me was PEO Fixed Wing from SOCOM and General Owen, the ASC commander at the time. And I was in one of my rare moods where I was, oh, we used to do this stuff at Wright Pat. And General Owen goes, sounds good, get you a hanger. And you're like, uh oh. So then come back. My boss at the time was very supportive. I now have a three star that's supportive. And I knew we could do good. You know, when you go out and do acquisition, you know the prime always charges a lot. It takes a long time to get through the contractual processes. And if you're government, there's a lot of that stuff you don't need to do. So I had to build a business case 
and we wanted to socialize it at ASC and then socialize it at AFUC. Because I didn't want to go off and do something that was wrong or stepped on someone else's responsibility. Great response everywhere we went. Everyone would always say, give it a good name, wish you best luck, da-da. And then we briefed AFMC commander. And he loved it. He goes, great idea. I give you no people and I give you no budget. You know, my boss just ah, had a heart attack. I loved it. Because now you have carte blanche. You can basically build your business the way you want to. So we came back over to this hangar that we had acquired. It was dirty. We painted it. We cleaned it. We did everything we wanted to. And we started trying to get tools from DMO, DRMO. And things were kind of chugging along. And I said, you know what? How am I going to get a sheet metal or electrician? I need to put in services and material IDIQ in place. So this IDIQ we put in place was a Native American 8A, $20 million. We were experimental. Why go any bigger than that? Let's see if it works. So now I have this company and the government people in the office, which would be logistics, uh, engineering, program management, and out here we try to get touch loop. So now we're forming a, if you better, a partnership. Right. partnership. So now as time went on, people would say, hey, can you build this for us? I can build that widget for you, but I need you to buy me a machine so that I can machine it. Oh, by the way, I need to buy material and labor hours. I'll put that separately on a task order for my IDIQ. And here's your price, uh, cost for it. 70 to 90% cheaper than what they pay. Okay. So, uh, so let me stop you there. So, uh, so you're talking about building like um, unique items, um, prototypes, small some small production runs or you know, uh, small numbers of quantities of things. But you're engineering a solution and then producing an actual tangible product. Yes, that's the cool part. You have to think of the solution, design it, build it, finish it, test it, and deliver it all within a very short cycle. Right. So somebody comes to you and they say, I need a widget. And the only place I can get a widget is if this one manufacturer and they charge half a million dollars at this widget. Can you build me a widget cheaper than that? It depends. You know, data rights, proprietary stuff. Do I need to reverse engineer something? If the government owns the drawings, piece of cake, you just build the print and deliver it. One of the issues we run into, not really an issue, but it's kind of a new challenge is, I don't have authority on any of these platforms. So when they come to me, there's some chief engineer who's responsible for these platforms. B2, for example. We're doing some B2 projects. If I need to change something that's in that drawing set or design something, he has to render airworthiness. Mm -hmm. So I have to produce artifacts to do that. This is my opinion, but in the old days, you'd go to the prime and they'd brief yellow, green, blue. It looks good. Everything looks good. And government <clears throat> gives thumbs up. I don't do that. I provide calculations. I provide raw data. Mm -hmm. The young engineers, they geek out on it. They just love it. So they get to analyze stuff. So we provide those design artifacts and they render the safety or the safe to flight or build uh, mm -hmm. from the program office. So when you were talking about this IDIQ that you mm -hmm. developed, that was to bring on specialists, um, skilled tradesmen, right? Uh, people who know how to take a big chunk of steel mm -hmm. and turn it into something that's actually efficient or effective. Yes, and it's good that you said skilled because 
we need someone that can hit the ground here who's a master craftsman. So I have that project, the widget that you wanted me to build, and I quoted four hours of machinist. Where are you going to get a master machinist to leave his job, come here for four hours? That's tough. So with the network I have of people downtown, most everyone here either is retired, owns their own business, or works for a family business. So when I called them up or CNI or my IDIQ contractor called them up, they would say, sure, I'll come out there and work four hours for I. And so they'd work and then they'd go back to wherever their previous job was. As time went on, we started getting more and more work. And mind you, on the IDIQ, these task orders, when they're complete, they're done. And so we started overlapping, getting a lot of them. Right now we have 58 active projects. So these people, the workers would now stay here and never go back. So I'd say 13 of them have been here for over eight years. Okay. So it's been, and in that eight years, well, we've been here for 10 years and we're on our 468th project and we've got 58 active ones right now. We've probably returned in the neighborhood of 600 million back to the customers. So substantial savings. And, and, and savings, so I mean, just the way you use your labor it, it, that's the most efficient way to do it. You're bringing the person into the project when and paying them for the time that they're actually producing something tangible for you. And have something for them to move on to the next one so it ends up appearing like a full-time job. Right, yeah. right. Okay, uh, so how big is the team and, and what kind of, what are what are some of the trades and skills that you have? <laughs> We're about 30 people all together. I call the white collar the in the, in the office is my government. In there, we have logisticians, program managers, engineers, um, and then, of course, controllers. And then I borrow from WI, who's our uh, parent organization, contracts. Now, I serve about every PEO in the Air Force Lifecycle Management Command. So I ask each one of them as I help them out, can they buy me some labor? Mm -hmm. So on the uh, acquisition support contract that they have over in Area B, I have four individuals, two PMs, a logistician, and a finance manager that collectively I divvy up what the PEO's contribution should be, and then they fund those four contract positions. So that's the office. Out here on the floor, we have electricians, sheet metal, quality assurance. When I say electrician, that's aircraft electricians, machinists welding um, mechanic and helper. So we have quite a diverse set out here. But a neat thing is they also go to deploy. Mm -hmm. It's real quiet right now. Right. It's lunch, but I also have a full team out in Milton Hall in England modifying MC-130Js there. I have a crew down at Patrick Air Force Base right now modifying HC-130Js down there. And what they're modifying, the kits and the systems that we built, we built them here, we put them all together, and now we're installing them on the aircraft. So that schedule I have to really balance because I need them here to mm -hmm. build parts. Yep. And so they're coming home tonight, so I get one of them back from Patrick. So, You, you know, it's interesting. A minute ago you used the term business when you talked about this organization. And so the organization falls under the ISR soft directorate. Yes. Okay. Um, but you get work from all of the PEOs, yes. okay? Um, so that's kind of the way you approach it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if your budget is coming from other organizations a lot of times, then if you don't produce something of value to them, 
then you don't get customers. That's right. And so <clears throat> for us, the work exploded and it exploded because of word of mouth. And being in this business as long as I have, I know a lot of folks and they say, yeah, I remember Al, he's okay guy. Let's give him something. So what we also do is we say, this is what I'm going to deliver. This is what it's going to cost. And oh, by the way, we're not a cost reimbursable. So if you give me a thousand bucks and I deliver it for a hundred, you get $900 back. Mm -hmm. If I make a boo-boo and it now costs you 200, you get 800 back, you're still making money. <laughs> and so we have a reputation of delivering exactly what they want and when they want it and for a price. Yeah. So they keep coming back. But like I said, that relationship is different because they've tried different alternatives. So when they come to us, it's a good working relationship. Um, so tell us about some of the equipment that you've got here. I mean, there's a vast array of stuff uh, mm -hmm. looking around. Um, what are some of the things that you have? Okay. Um, when you build a business and you want to help everybody, you got to have everything you can think of. So I had to have a plan of how I wanted to lay my shop out for better sense. So in here, we have complete sheet metal area. We can do all kinds of sheet metal work. We just acquired last week a water jet machine. So now we can cut certain sizes of sheet metal. In the middle, you can see it's a wood shop. We're building crates and fixtures. This is F-16 projects right here. We're getting ready to ship out. Mm -hmm. Global Hawk stuff over in those crates there. Other projects in the back. In the corner, we do um, sandblasting. We also have our heavy uh, sheet metal machines over here. Over here is our QA. We do a lot of our uh, cable and label marking, and shrink tube marking inside, kind of environmentally controlled. We also uh, do fiber wrapping around fighter uh, cables. They have to have this upper right. wrap around them. That's our knitting machine for that, and a 75-ton press. In the center, it's all rolling stock because we like to bring aircraft inside. And of course, as you can see, we're expanding. We're, we're moving in the next door, so hopefully a lot of this will go away. And so we will roll it and accommodate the aircraft in here. Over in the middle, we have our uh, cable build area, so we build cables. We've done cables for B2, C5, um, good grief, KC46 did some test cables, mm -hmm. uh, MQ9. We just do a whole bunch of different cables. And then we have our machine shop, which consists of four three-axis milling centers, CNC controlled. Okay. Then we have CNC lathe, and then we have conventional lathe and conventional three-axis knee mill. And then in the back, we do MIG, TIG, and TAC welding. So we can do about anything that removes metal. And then we got this one project from, um, it was from MQ9, and they wanted us to do additive manufacturing. Okay. So now I have four industrial 3D printers that are plastic. They're not metal okay. so they're yep. plastic. And then, of course, we have our one tiny one in the engineering office for modeling and stuff. So we can do just about anything here that's not, I call it EPA stinky. So if we have something that needs painting, right? I'll okay. just put that on the task order and that'll be part of the cost for that IDIQ. Mm -hmm. And then it comes back to us and we'll do some of the value-added work to it. So anything that requires, you know, paint boost, chemical processing, we capture all that in the beginning and put that on the task order. Okay, and so sometimes you'll reach out to maybe local businesses and Dayton area has everything. If I have to go outside of the Dayton area for a process of material or something, it's pretty exotic. 
I mean, they do composites in this area, all kinds of finishing, all kinds of chemical processes, metal building, machining, welding. It's it's all done here. So I think of the Dayton area as a complement to the skill sets that we have here and also surge. If I've got my welder tied up doing two projects and I got two more welding projects that came in, we'll send those downtown. Okay. And so in some instances, do you come up with a solution and then maybe have to go to somebody else if you need like maybe 80 of them built or something like that? <clears throat> or, or is that something that still you would build in-house? It, and I always hate saying it depends because I'm yeah. like a consultant answer. But what will happen is if it's something that they need for their whole fleet and their fleet small, we'll do that. If it's something that's a lot of numbers, typically an acquisition they'll have some sort of strategy to go to a production prime or production, but they need the parts now. So I'll work with them to figure out where that hump is so that they can transition over to, to allow the prime to build. With the drawings that we do, give them to the program office. So it's government owned. Okay. So we it, it depends. We can do them all, do a couple, transition. So we all sit down and figure that out in the beginning. Uh, so you mentioned a little bit about additive, additive manufacturing. I wanted to see, um, you know, they talk about this fourth industrial revolution kind of phase of things, you know, with um, with additive manufacturing, digital engineering, things of that nature. Um, so a lot of the stuff you mentioned here is more traditional. Are you guys looking towards um, morphing into some of those things? or? And, and when you say morphing, remember, I have no budget. So my morphability is zero. But as customers come in, we do what we call smart engineering. So if we design, we use a computer-aided design tool. And on there, there's certain analytics that are on there. We can do some stress analysis. We can do thermal analysis. And this is all part of those design artifacts we give back to the program office. So yes, we examine our limited scope digitally, if you will. And then when we get ready to machine it, we digitally package it up on a thumb drive for a better sense, load it out into a CAM software, and then that CAM software translates it to code for the machine, so it's all seamless. So now you can build a part that was designed digitally, and it's pretty accurate, unless you had a catastrophic failure on your machine. So for us, we do that part, but then we also have a, uh, a scanner that allows us to do some reverse engineering by generating point cloud turning it into digital data and then building the part from that so our piece of it's pretty small yeah. but i get real passionate about digital inventory which you know when you're in private industry like i was you build something and your customer would accept it because you have a proven process right iso 9000 something 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 so now you have this process that they feel comfortable with generating a part can you imagine being in the middle of an island and an airplane lands and it broke apart and then your sergeant goes in, pulls the computer file, runs it to a metal 3D printing machine, prints the part, next morning puts it on the jet and off it goes. Right. But, you know, we, we've got to work on that process certification because we like to test everything. Right, especially for like safety of flight items, things yes. like that. You've got to know. Well, we're due to you. Yeah. yeah. That's, exactly. a that's a question for the younger generation. Yeah. Okay. Right. Uh, but bottom line, I, I think the thing that sounds so cool about this facility is that people come in here with weird problems, okay, hard to solve problems, and you guys come up with a solution for mm -hmm. them. Yes. 
We, we had this one, it was on the F-22. There was someone working on the, they have an ejector that comes down and, and they have to put a tool on it and twist it and jimmy it and it opens it for maintenance purposes. Well, apparently it accidentally opened and struck someone on the head and almost killed the technician. Hmm. So safety came in, put a, a, a blocker on it, saying you can't do it anymore, but they still had the requirement to do the maintenance. So we get a call from the F-22 guys, hey, we're not allowed to get behind this plate anymore, but we still have a requirement to open the ejector. Can you help us out? You know, none of us over here know the inside out of an F-22, so we always say, well, can you bring it over? And they say, yes. So they bring this ejector over and it was sitting on the floor. And of course, all of us, you know, we geek out. So we're standing around looking at it. And then all of a sudden, Sean, our one engineer decided I could design this and it'll change this. I can put a cam on this. And so he runs inside, quickly designs something using our SolidWorks, sends it to our little prototype printer. We had a little plastic piece for him at the end of the day. Mm. So now the, the, the F-22 guys are like putting it on there you hook a 3 8 drive socket and it opened it can you build us one out of metal well, we had we had some leftover metal and usually in a tool you want it to perish before the part perishes so right. we made it real soft and they took it out to the field and he was so funny he called us back and he said yeah we took it out and lockheed said oh i see you got our new lockheed tool <laughs> and we're like he was very good he said nope it's government and so we built out of leftover metal 120 of these tools Gave it an art part number. Now it's in all the mechanics toolboxes. So that was kind of cool. That yeah. one, you know, it's it's real tangible. So it just makes it a safe way to remove that, so they they can to get do it whatever they need to do. You, over here, it's it's funny because I always get the questions from my boss. Well, why didn't they try this? Why, boss? I don't know. I they come to me. They have a problem. I I try to work the problem, and then off they go. So it, it, it's kind of fun because I don't own the whole disaster or I don't own the whole problem. Right. But I try to work on the little piece they give us, and that's kind of fun. Uh, give us another example of something else that you guys have done. So, well, for example, this one was an interesting one. I, I can't remember if it was a, a C-130 from Norway or Sweden, but it crashed many years ago. And their government came back to the Air Force wanting another 130 to replace the one that crashed. And so part of the 130 has government furnished equipment that goes to Lockheed and then Lockheed mounts it on the aircraft when they're building it. Mm -hmm. Problem was they didn't have any more of these. This is a KY-75 tray. And so the program office went out to Davis Month and found what was left, brought them here. Oh, they were rough. <laughs> they were super mm -hmm. rough. And so we asked, hey, do you have the prints? We could see if we could build them from scratch. So it's like a 1960-something NSA design made out of steel. It's a monster. Mm -hmm. And I think they're quoting seventy to $80,000 for one tray. Well, when, you, when Alan hears that number, he goes, ah! But if you're building a $135 million aircraft, this is budget dust, so it right. doesn't get much attention. So what we did was we ended up taking that drawing and machining the plastic and the metal parts, bought the knurled knobs, machined all this, Tack welded this down, tack welded these down. And it was really ten to $14,000 labor and material. And then the drawings were engineering level three, so they required certain vendors to be used. Mm -hmm. And the vendor for the uh, shock isolators wanted 400 bucks a piece. Alan couldn't stand that. So <laughs> I said, uh, let me see if I can get a suitable sub. Well, the engineer in the 
Rodamoff said, no, use what's on the drawing. Well, something inside of you says, that's not right. I can get it, same performance, a lot less. Mm -hmm. So I went to the PEO for mobility and he found me a young engineer who had some go get them, if you will. And I bought some locally, gave them to him. He took them to Brooks, I believe, and ran the profiles. He came back and said, suitable stuff. And I'm like, great, because the other ones were just too expensive. So we went from $400 a piece to $48 a piece. So by calculating all of this through the Air Force, there's a potential to avoid about $68 million. And as I tell everybody, I think the Army has more of these. Right. So those are the things I always try to teach people to look at the little things and uh, as a result of that the C-130 program office has us build them all as you can see over there we're supplying them the Lockheed Martin as DFE. So now this is a mount uh, that, that absorbs some vibration so of it mounts aircraft. into the bottom of the aircraft and it allows a piece of equipment to, to slide into it securely. Right okay. and then it isolates it so that it doesn't impact the performance of the Right. Vibration. So it's a necessary piece of equipment. Yes. You know uh, but something simple enough that it can be built and, and you guys came up with a cheaper way to get it done. Yes, sir. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so, I mean, it, it really does, I think I said before, um, it's it's kind of a, um, if if they come, you will build it, you know. People come here with a, with a, with a problem, you come up with a way to solve it, uh, come up with a solution to build. But there's sometimes, <clears throat> there's sometimes when they come to us <clears throat> and we all sit down and we're looking at their problem, a light bulb will go off in their head. And they've just figured out how to use their environment to get the answer. Mm -hmm. So we've had a few of those, which it's kind of rewarding because you'll sit there and go, why didn't you try this? Why didn't you, why don't you? And then all of a sudden they go, oh, oh, we got an idea. So we never get to help them other than providing them like an intellectual consultant. You know, in this day and age where we're trying to be innovative, we're trying to go faster, we're trying to produce quicker, um, as the chief of staff says, you've got to accelerate change or lose, you know. Yes. Um, you've got to look for unique solutions in order to do that. So uh, it's it's clear that you and your team really love what you're doing. Oh. Right? You have a passion for this. Um, so is this the best job in the Air Force as far as you're concerned? Yeah, one, one of my employees says, this is the greatest job on the planet. <laughs> and so for me, it's it's kind of like a culmination of my career. It's the best job I had, which I wish I had it when I started my career. But it was something that, you know, when I built the business, I knew what didn't work or what irritated me and what was, and everyone in here was either an operator, had fought wars. Mm -hmm. They know the urgency. Motivation is not an issue. Uh, so we always focus on the warfighter, and that's the biggest thing. And I don't have to tell them. I don't need to have a banner to do that because they were that guy yeah. or gal. And so it's it's nice, very rewarding. All right. So we're just about to uh, the end of our time, but is there anything that I've left out or anything I missed that you'd like to add? No, other than, you know, we, we do serve all the PEOs. Uh, we are located under WI, soft ISR, mm -hmm. uh, but we're, we'll take on anything. We'll sit down and, and talk to a customer and if there's some sort of issue that they're having difficulty with, we could possibly help them out. If not, we're pretty good at steering folks in the right direction, I know. All right. But uh, that's about it. Hey, sir, appreciate your time today and uh, helping us understand better what the art is and what it does. I appreciate it. Thank you.
Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center's Leadership Log Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed learning about the RDIF team and the great work they do keeping our warfighters in the fight. If you haven't already done so, then please consider subscribing to this series. And don't forget to follow and like us on our social media platforms. For more information on all things Air Force Lifecycle Management Center related, please visit and bookmark our website at www.aflcmc.af.mil. If you have an idea for a future episode on a topic that would interest the Lifecycle Management Center family, shoot us an email at aflcmc.pa.mediateam at us.af.mil. Until next time, stay strong, stay safe, and keep providing what warfighters need when they need it.